0: 54% of the world's population currently lives in cities, and that number is set to grow. So it's no wonder that so much of our transformation efforts are focused there. Smart cities promise to be safer, less congested and more healthy. And a lot of the tech to do that is already here.
1: If you're able to spot patterns, if you're able to look across multiple different disparate services or disparate infrastructures and then that becomes your opportunity to really drive step changes. Although we've been using
0: data to analyze urban environments since the 70s, privacy remains the biggest barrier to growth.
2: Licence agreements, when that thing pops up on your phone or on your computer and the data gets sent out, and if you're okay with that, then we know centralizing data, you can do a lot of things. Some of them are good, some of them are pretty creepy.
0: In today's episode, we talk about the big dreams and logistical nightmares of getting smart city initiatives off the ground. We discuss the role of big data and the individual, why a siloed smart city is destined to fail, and how a reimagining cities post-COVID might just bring about some much-needed sustainable change. All that and much more. I'm Michael Bird and this is Technology Untangled. modern city is changing. Urbanisation and population growth are non-ending phenomena, with 66% of the population expected to be living in cities by 2050.
1: What I think is fascinating about the evolving role of cities is they originally came into existence predominantly through the Industrial Revolution as a place for manufacturing, and really their role was around the physical exchange of goods
0: that's Jen Hawes-Hewitt from the Smart London Board. Jen has been involved in numerous smart city projects worldwide over the past 14 years and has seen firsthand how the city has evolved.
1: What we've seen uh, as times moved on is a transition more to a services economy. You know, The city becomes a place where you exchange ideas. It becomes a place potentially where it's not just about the exchange of physical goods, but it's also looking at how it becomes a melting pot for data exchange or for the information economy really
0: can you just quickly explain what we mean by a smart city
1: I, I typically relate it to these four elements so firstly there is definitely a role an enhanced role for data and emerging technology within a smart city that's that's an a- defining aspect I think the other thing for me is about a smart city is integration across multiple verticals. So in the early stages of smart cities, you would see, you know, smart energy systems and that would be categorised as a smart city. But I think actually true smart cities are ones that are looking laterally across multiple aspects of their infrastructure and service provision. And they're looking at how can they exchange data and look at ways to drive opportunities across those. The third area is really about citizens at the core the smart city narrative has sort of matured over the last decade it was started with a very strong pure tech push and now there's a real importance of around how does this tech and data how does it actually really make a step change in how you serve citizen needs and create more of a pull a sustained pull from citizens for these new services that are more convenient, more intuitive and so forth. So really um, innovative new models and service provision. And then the fourth element, I think, is really about cross sector collaboration. So whether that be public private partnerships, whether that be uh, the importance of the academic community, the third sector, etc. But it really is about working across uh, different parts of the community um, and bringing together those different disciplines.
0: The first smart cities came about as a kind of tech push, but these days we tend to take a more holistic view.
3: For me that's really about taking existing data sources and new data sources to provide a better experience for the citizen and help the city get the best from the facilities and the resources it has so reducing energy consumption improving education and care services those sorts of things
0: that's ian henderson chief technologist at hewlett-packard enterprise and from ian's perspective it's all about using the right tech
3: in the right way to solve problems big and small Simple things that would help me, I guess, would be guiding me the least congested route across town to a parking space that I know is free. Looking at efficiencies, you know, looking at understanding energy use and the sort of change that we're going through at the moment of the increasing adoption of electric vehicles and solar panels and wind farms. You know, how do we look at all of that energy and manage the city as a microgrid? If you just think of that sort of challenge of Taking the energy, renewable energy you can generate, storing it in those vehicles, but then potentially taking it back from a parked vehicle to run the grid when the wind drops. So all sorts of different use cases, but really it's about taking lots of different sources of data and bringing value from those for the citizen. And
0: having them talk to each other.
3: Ideally, yes. The challenge here is how we take lots of disparate sources of data and share those in a secure way that's accepted by the citizen as well
0: why do we need cities to be smarter aren't they smart enough already
3: i think that varies a little bit where you live in the world right so in, in some cases the government will want the city to be more attractive place right they want to attract investment that people want to live there if people want to live there employers will want to be there in others it's about ensuring that the infrastructure of the city can continue to cope as the city expands its population I think increasingly it will be about the environment, the reduction in carbon footprint, transport, heating, lighting, lighting, and reducing the cost of providing local services. I I live in a rapidly growing city in in Milton Keynes. We've seen a number of projects, but in the UK, we don't tend to come with this sort of overarching view. We've we've looked at little technology pilots to see how we can cope with the growing city. And when we have that challenge around investment in infrastructure.
0: Investment is a common problem in smart cities, and it's what's often blamed when big ideas don't really get off the ground. But it's important to note that smart is a relative term, because every city is different. If you're building new, it's one thing. But if you've got to overlay an existing infrastructure, well, that's a whole other kettle of fish.
3: In some locations, the government may decide that it wants to build an overall smart city or smart country. I think Dubai, City of Dubai is a great example of that top-down approach. The government were prepared to make the investment to install and build an overall smart city platform with some use cases, and then look at what they would add and grow over time. So that really is down to politics, culture, and investment. I think an example of the other side, you know, I was presenting in Athens late 2019, I think, and one of the other presenters was a minister of digitization, And his description of what they were trying to do was digitize their services. And I was surprised to hear there in in Greece that for almost every government service, you still have to visit an office. To tax a vehicle or to pay your taxes, all these sort of things, you physically have to go somewhere to do it. And most of us would expect to be able to do those things online. So I think there's a, even in the Western world, there are different degrees of investment to digitize and get value from those services. If you're
0: overlaying the old, smart city initiatives often read like digital transformation projects. As Jen mentioned earlier, tech plays an all-important role. But to get real value,
3: we need to look beyond the technocentric approach. So in the UK, I've seen, you know, we've mostly taken that technocentric approach. And I think that's down to funding. Because what typically happens is local authorities can apply for funding for projects. And in Milton Keynes, that's certainly something that we've done here, and we've done a number of pilot projects that run for a few years that look at smart parking. We've put, I think, something like two and a half thousand sensors on the lampposts all around the city so that we can track the way that people move around the city. The longer term goal would be to take those technologies and feed that back up into that holistic view.
0: The tech that we need to make our cities really smart is already here. In many countries, 5G is rolling out. The Internet of Things, or IoT, has exploded. And governments around the world are using lampposts for everything from smart lighting to traffic management to identifying the sound of gunshots. And in fact, smart cities are often synonymous with IoT.
3: But is a sensor always the answer? You know, IoT is a low-powered, battery-powered sensor sensor transmitting over low-power networks to tell me, is a bin full? Is there sediment in a drain? Is a parking space occupied? And whilst they're interesting concepts and there are lots of pilots and they have their place, the cost to roll them out, the cost to periodically replace the sensors when the battery dies means they're not always going to scale. So the IoT in smart cities is not all about sensors transmitting data. It might be some of that, but it might be those cameras on top of a lamppost which has a power source but much simpler to roll out. And I can potentially add new use cases with with new machine learning models without having to send new sensors out. I visited a customer, I won't name them, a few years ago, and I was in the car park and there were lots of bits of broken black plastic around the car park. So I said to the customer, what's that? And they said, oh, that's our, our smart parking sensors. You know, we've got a parking challenge with everybody driving into the office. And this would tell them when spaces were free or occupied and it was great until it snowed and the facilities people cleared the car park with a snowplow and snapped the top off all of the <laughs> all the parking sensors. They already had CCTV. It isn't difficult to write an algorithm that looks and says, is there a car in that space or not, rather than a battery powered sensor. And I think a lot of people look at IoT as I've got to have a connected thing stuck out there somewhere giving me the data. And actually, it doesn't matter how you get the data. As long as you get data, you can do something with.
1: There was a lot of discussion about iot as being kind of the tech but actually if i think about some of the advances that have been made it's as much about iot and you know sensing control and actuation of the built environment as it is about algorithms that are applied to help prioritize uh service provision on some of this kind of human services side or it can be around yeah the use of augmented reality to help train, you know, social workers to deal with children in care, or it can be around, you know, the role of 5G as being able to create sort of smart intersections and, and improve safety on our roads or whatever. So it's not like there's one emerging tech, but I think it's almost the approach a city has to embracing tech, seeing it as a growth opportunity, seeing it as an opportunity to innovate, seeing it as a, an opportunity to have a discussion with their citizens about how they can maximise the upside of that tech to their day-to-day lives. Now,
0: all of that is not to discount the usefulness of IoT. Because in some organisations, sensors have been a kind of gateway technology that then scales up to something more ambitious. And that's exactly what's happened with Transport for London, or TFL.
3: They've engaged in a number of interesting projects, actually, at TfL. Starting about five years ago, so 2015-16, they added lots of sensors around the network. So air conditioning, escalators, the trains. Can I monitor the condition of those items so that I can fix them before they go wrong? Is periodic maintenance. You'll see them shutting down an escalator every few years to strip it down and do maintenance, for example. If they fit these sensors, they'll start to hear vibrations or different things going along, and I've I've seen them before when you go to London, you can hear one screeching and squealing, (laughs) and you know that's not going to be working soon. But, you know, that could probably have been picked up three or four weeks before I could hear it from a sensor. They started to also do some more interesting things. So they started adding sensors and collecting Wi-Fi data. So they were doing this in an anonymized way because with the Oyster card, they can see, which station you swipe in at and which station you swipe out at. They don't know the route that you take around the station or even the trains that you went on to get from A to B. You don't need to connect to a Wi-Fi network for someone to track you. If you've got Wi-Fi turned on, on a, in your pocket on a device, that will be visible to the access point. So you can track within a few meters where somebody is.
0: Because your device is like... It must it's be polling, peeing.
3: yeah. yeah. You don't know who it is. You can see a MAC address. You don't know who they are, but you can see you know, within a few meters where they are. So TFL used that to then understand what were the routes that people took, which platform and where on the platform did they get on the train. They've expanded that more recently. They've now put uh, free Wi-Fi across most of the stations and they're using that to track the way that people work.
0: And uh, what kind of insights are they looking for with some of this data that they're gathering?
3: They want to understand better how the customers use the network and that data can help them offer better service, be more efficient in the deployment of staff. But they're also then looking at how that data and visibility can expand across different routes. So, you know, how busy are the buses, the bicycles that you can use, the different services, so that if they could share that data, I can potentially go to an application and I can say, I want to go from A to B in London. And it will say, well, the quickest route, less congested route for you today is going to be (laughs) a bus or the underground from this station or taking a Boris bike.
1: The work that TFL specifically did as well off their own bat around release of open APIs about uh, real-time data feeds of, of transport, then became, you know, the source of innovation for things like City Mapper, which is obviously replicated all over the world and is hugely successful. Um, so, so, yeah, they really were and are, you know, very much on that front foot around data, open data, and how that has a role to play in inviting other people to innovate over the top.
0: Jen sees the pooling and sharing of data between public and private as a key for a successful smart city initiative. But organisations have a much bigger role to play than that. Jen was involved with Invest Ottawa, an initiative in Canada that provided a testbed for new technologies for the city.
1: They were very progressive around the role of autonomous vehicles, very interested in the role of 5G and how it could support some of their local industrial sectors like agriculture. So Accenture, working in partnership with Microsoft and others, came together and we've we've been working there for a couple of years now to help them build out the business model for how can you create a kind of innovation sector that invites public and private to come and test and trial um, new ways of working but also in partnership with Microsoft, also think about what's the actual cloud infrastructure that could be architected to ingest the data that was being created through, for example, trialing of drones for last mile delivery, or smart intersections, or smart agriculture running on 5G, etc. Then, you know, small, medium businesses or whatever can come and plug and play into that shared infrastructure. It's been a great success. It's attracted more money from the federal government because it has proven that it can become a real opportunity to bring to life some of these concepts that have been living on a drawing board. We can actually like test and trial them in the built environment, have citizens come and touch and feel and see what it's like to have for example autonomous shuttles like would how would that work in their streets you know how do you manage people's concerns about accidents or how do you get them to embrace autonomous driving in the, in the urban centers and so forth so it's really it's about being able to bring this stuff to life and let people interact with it and have their concerns aired and and see the opportunities it affords as well
0: Jen says that Invest Ottawa was so successful that it's now a waiting list for small organisations to come and use the test facility.
1: It's about bringing down the cost um, to innovate because if you're a small, medium business and you're trying to trial a new 5G application (laughs) and that stuff's not a widely available level of network quality where you are um, setting that stuff up privately for your own purposes would be prohibitively expensive. So it's thinking about... How can we create these kind of sandboxes?
0: And for it to succeed, you need small businesses, medium-sized organisations involved.
1: Yeah, I have to say, so many of the projects we do now in the smart cities context is as much about working with those, you know, big global brands that people are very familiar with as it is about pulling through that next wave of innovators you look at their Connectory, which was a TFL-sponsored working with Bosch, that was very much about how do you bring through small companies, for example, and help them to have access to trans- live transport feeds and, and you know build their apps on top of that. So I think the future of smart cities is an ecosystem-driven approach with cross-sector, but also within the private sector from the two-man band who's just got a bright idea and they're just starting out through to the, the big, larger players. So. There's definitely space for everyone.
0: It sounds like Invest Ottawa is building momentum. Giving organisations access to tech has attracted further investment, which has attracted more innovation and presumably more investment. Collaboration is a common factor in the success of these kinds of initiatives. And Jen says it's been vital in the work of the Smart London Board.
1: London was one of the first cities in Europe to have a fully functioning open data store. Data is at the heart of that smart ambition and open data and how that creates kind of the fuel for small businesses and academics and so forth to kind of come and problem solve. It's such an essential ingredient.
0: In 2018, the board put together the Smarter London Together roadmap, which set out a plan for collaborating between the boroughs and the services of the city, from Transport for London to the National Health Service.
1: Something that I think is really special actually about um, what the Smart London Board have been doing. So this was a recognition that there's an opportunity to get a coalition of the willing across London boroughs. It's 32 boroughs in the City of London all kind of doing the kind of operational activities of, of, of a borough that looks after, you know, typically 250,000, 300,000 people. And they each have their own kind of ways of working and so forth. And so the London Office of Technology Innovation has been doing great work, both on the kind of building that coalition of the willing for multiple boroughs to sort of solve for common issues, but also looking at what what are the challenges that cross borough lines and Therefore, it makes sense to tackle, not as an individual borough, but come together and tackle together.
0: Since the start of the pandemic, some shared issues have been brought into sharp focus, which has led the Smart London Board to focus on new objectives around technology and citizens. The digital divide.
1: In COVID times, uh, what the impact of the digital divide has been, it's been dramatic in terms of causing a difference between those folks that have a good, you know, internet connection to their house, the right devices, they can access their homeschooling, etc. And those that don't, especially without things like libraries, which have become a bit of a lifeline, whatever, for some of these ability to get kind of shared access. The impact it has is that it drives, I guess, greater disparities in our society in terms of the ability to access basic services. So looking at how you can create opportunities to support that levelling up, to support that opportunity for folks who don't traditionally have access, to be able to get access. And as I say, on the device side as well, I think, yeah, it's really become a priority for the Smart London Board for those reasons. it's, It's really I guess, just shone a light on an existing issue, but it's an important one to address. In
0: 2021, the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, allocated £1.5 million over the next two years to work with the London Office of Technology and Innovation on the digital divide, setting up a digital exclusion task force that brings together the London boroughs with telcos like BT and Vodafone and charities such as Age UK. And once again, collaboration is the
1: key. I think All of the progressive smart city leaders now have a full recognition that equality has to be at the heart of their smart vision. And if I think about, you know, the CTO came into New York and her first kind of observation was that she very much wanted it to be a smart and equal city. And that was, you know, several years ago now, but they go side by side, I think now. Whereas before, it was perhaps seen as like smart was more about pushing the frontier of technology, which it still is, but it's also about doing the foundations right as well now, more so, and addressing some of those long-standing kind of social challenges in parallel with driving technology adoption.
0: At the heart of it, whether you're redeveloping an existing city or starting a new futuristic one afresh, As Jen says, it's about doing the foundations right. It's about technology, bringing society along with it.
3: Technology is reducing the cost of monitoring, the improvements in communications over the last decade or so in 3G, 4G, and we're about to see 5G, means it's so much easier to gather that data. The ability to analyze that data, the growing capability of AI, machine learning and analytics linked to that ubiquitous connectivity of the citizen, build the foundations for the smart city. So, you know, clearly you couldn't do these things without the technology, but at the same time, I think we have to consider access for all parts of the community. Not everybody is technology savvy, so we mustn't do things that exclude parts of society. You know, building a smart city for the digital natives and then cutting off the old and the young (laughs) or the the people with lower incomes is, is not something that we can do.
0: Thanks to the coronavirus pandemic, the digital divide is now top of the agenda for many Smart City initiatives, but it's not the only thing that's given us pause for thought. At the World Economic Forum this year, leaders met to discuss the climate challenge we're all facing. Their report stated that cities cover just 3% of the Earth's land surface, and yet they create more than 70% of all carbon emissions. And to keep global temperature increases to 1.5 degrees C or below, we have to achieve net zero.
2: One more uh, data point to throw out there, 50% of the people and growing and 75% of the energy. And so when you want to make a difference, you want to go to where there's the most opportunity.
0: That's Kirk Bresnicker, chief architect at Hewlett-Packard Labs in California.
2: So much of the city is designed around the peak, around the peak hour of transport, whether it's people or things or energy. And now we're saying, you know what? I know we put you all in that city, but how about instead of leaving and going to work every day, and now how about y'all stay in your apartments and work from there? And so you have these underutilized resources, and it's an opportunity. And so it's time to really examine the city and understand how it could be that tool for change. We've, we had the A. We're doing the test and now we're in B. We don't have to go back to A again.
0: During the lockdowns in 2020, we all saw the photos of wildlife returning to smog-free cities. I even saw deer in my local park for the first time. And there were things like dolphins swimming up the canal in Venice. Uh, Okay, I mean, admittedly, that last one was photoshopped. But the point is, we've been talking about net zero cities for a long, long time. So... Could COVID be the catalyst we need to finally act?
2: We say net zero, which means that, okay, I'm consuming and then I'm um, recapturing. And there's so many good reasons to provide a green canopy in a city. But I'm always concerned when we say net, because I'm afraid that we're saying, I'm going to spend some critical resource now. And I'm gonna do this thing I hope will pay off over a long period of time. And it's probably someone else's job. And I always like to be personally responsible. And so what can I do? Because you never have to recapture a ton of CO2 that you didn't emit. So the first step should always be about efficiency. How do we use less energy? You know, Every time you walk by something, a machine, and it feels hot, That is waste energy, right? That's energy that's lost as heat. So how do we use the fact that we're in a city to drive that efficiency and electrification, especially electrification, because if you're still burning fossil fuels, then it's still better to the electrification and efficiency of distribution of energy and efficiency of turning that energy into the work we need to have done every day that's also great but when we can move to electrification and decarbonize to go to renewables then that is the win and then when we drive the efficiency that's the triple win
0: let's talk technology then so what kinds of technology are going to help us to achieve that kind of systemic efficiency and therefore improve the environmental impact of our cities
2: so it, you know, we can certainly talk about the electrification, so everything we can do to move to electrification. And again, that's twofold. One is the efficiency of transport of the energy to where it's needed, that first element of the supply chain. And the second element is the efficiency of turning that energy into what you want to have done. So whether you're trying to move something, you're trying to sense something, you're trying to compute something, it's just easier. And when you can send it down a wire, instead of sending it down a tanker truck that was offloaded from a tanker ship that was offloaded, you know, loaded on from a port, just that transport of the energy. The second element is about that precision, precision in matching and making decisions about matching supply and demand. We want to move to renewables. But renewables, and you know, that's part of this also, whether you're using solar or wind, those are both affected by the weather. So it's important to be able to predict what that is and to have that long and short-term predictions. You want that kind of precision to sense and measure, but it's also that ability to predict and then to intervene. Can I gather the information, analyze it, reason over it, reach the conclusion i need and then take action in a time that matters because the sun's already set if the energy's already spent if i had to fire up that fossil fuel generator because i don't want to let the lights dim then i'm now not using my my renewable resource so being able to sense and predict and then to modify and to dial in uh, that behavior, so that matching of supply and demand, that's a big sensing task, that's a big computational task, and of course, neither one of those things comes for free either.
0: Surely, this is a use case that is ripe for some of those supercomputer-created AI models that we talked about a few episodes ago.
2: The kind of models that people are building today, even the small machine learning models, a 200 million weight model, well, that's the same as five internal combustion vehicles, same amount of energy, operated over their whole lifetime to train the model one time. So, all these things have intrinsic energy. So we we want to make sure that when we're doing the calculus and we're summing up the energy required to achieve a solution, we think about it from from now and put an infinity at the top of that integral sign because we really want to be thinking about the long-term ramifications of these decisions. Noted.
0: We can't ignore the sustainability element of tech, both in terms of energy and affordability.
2: If it's not sustainable, we can't afford for everyone to be able to use it, and that's not an equitable solution either. So we want to find that equitable, sustainable solution for us. And the reason, you know, some of the works that we do here at Labs is understanding how do we make the computation that we need to have happen fast enough, cheap enough, efficient enough, so that we can take that vision we have Oh, wouldn't it be great to live in this smart city where I am always guaranteed, and, and not, just, not, not just someone just telling me, not just looking at the app on my phone that says, oh, you planted 157 trees. No, I want something that proves, right? I want to see the math so that I know my behaviors are contributing to the solution instead of the problem. And all of that is computable, but we can't do it unlikely to be able to do it with today's conventional technologies. That's why the work we're driving towards is to understand. We understand that we have critical time-bound um, decisions. How can we do it? How can we afford the space, the weight, the power, the cooling, the energy? How can we maintain privacy and security and dignity and equity? And for me, that that is a compute problem.
0: The vision of a sustainable, energy-efficient city needs some serious tech innovation behind it. And we're going to look at some of those innovations later on in the series. Post-COVID, we have this great opportunity to improve our lives and cities for the better. So, where do we start?
2: So, in terms of short-term changes, uh, it's really understanding... How can I incent people to match demand with supply, whether that is space on the motorway, whether that is energy, how can we best utilize these so that I can accelerate the switch from fossil fuels to decarbonize, from non-sustainable to sustainable? And again, some of this is going to be technology. You can't use an electric vehicle if there isn't a charging station. So work out that infrastructure piece, but then are there behavioral elements that we can provide? And can we nudge people along in anticipation of what we expect the long-term changes to be? But in
0: order to make those long-term changes, we need to have in-depth understanding
2: of our environments,
0: whether that's IoT sensors on our water supplies or tracking journeys on the tube.
2: I want to understand what the best thing to do. Well, that means I'm going to need the data. It's not just a technical question; it's also a culture and society question. So let's talk about the ways in which we can pool information, and and this does involve some of the research elements here, right? Because we already know. Well, if you just want to click through the license agreements uh, when that thing pops up on your phone or on your computer, and the data gets sent out, and if you're okay with that, then we know centralising data, you can do a lot of things. Some of them can, are good, some of them are pretty creepy.
0: We know that data is at the heart of all of this, but there is an obvious trade-off with regards to personal privacy. Over in the UK, Ian Henderson says that organisations are acutely aware of the issues and are looking to provide the answer.
3: We're working with a number of customers that are looking at machine vision or video analytics for different use cases in smart cities, retail, in manufacturing. And I'm seeing companies have a policy against facial recognition. There's this front page test for the news. And the co-op recently, of have, have, as an example, have been using facial recognition to warn staff when a know an offender that might assault staff or has a history of that sort of thing, entering a store to warn the staff. And they've got some bad press on the back of that. So there's certainly a resistance to that. And the way that we approach that is to build in obfuscation of of somebody's face. We don't record who they are and don't do facial recognition as part of the process. That all comes to me down to this sort of interesting discussion point of how much data we're prepared to share to get value from the services. And we all use Google and Google Maps. We're prepared to allow people to have that data on us in return for Free simple services, and I think that challenge is not necessarily so much a technical one but a cultural challenge about you know how comfortable we are in using these services that that are based on knowing so much about us.
0: Privacy remains one of the biggest barriers to getting smart city projects off the ground, and unfortunately, there are no easy answers. However, Kirk says that with a little creativity, we can find solutions that make both parties happy. Those collecting the data and those giving it up.
2: We actually believe that there are technology solutions so that we can not just blindly give away our information, but in fact, be equitably rewarded for participating in an information system that advances a community goal. So can we understand the technology elements and then co-design the policy elements that enables us to contribute with confidence? our information into a solution because we know it is the data is only being used and here we're not saying trust because trust can be misplaced and trust can be violated so moving beyond trust to proof can we prove that the information that we are contributing to a solution one we're being actually rewarded for it either individually or communally and two we know exactly what happened to it so there's transparency
0: for kirk this is the final frontier to be addressed
2: getting policy and technology to work in tandem. When you have policy and technology that are co-designed, instead of one running ahead of the other, usually it's the technology that runs ahead and then the policy comes in afterwards and and hits the, the brakes. You know, no one likes to be going when someone's accelerating and hitting the brakes accelerating and hit the brakes. How can we have that mutually beneficial conversation about policy and technology and not have it be done in arrears and remediation and remorse, but really to do it cooperatively? So I think the more that we have policy and non-governmental teams reaching out and having conversations with technologists. And obviously we need to do the reciprocal thing on our side to reach out and participate and not just talk about the next best piece of technology for its sake, but to have that conversation about how that could be applied to the existential challenges that we face around energy, around sustainability and equity. Cities are
0: constantly in flux. And in this episode, we've identified just a few of the big challenges that we now face. To reimagine our cities, we need buy-in from all parties of our society, from governments and private to public organisations to the community and individuals. In this unique moment in history, with the pandemic highlighting our inefficiencies and inequalities, and with tech providing a platform for innovation... The hope is that those incredible cities of tomorrow might come sooner than we think. You've been listening to Technology Untangled. I'm Michael Bird and a huge thanks to Kirk Bresnicker, Ian Henderson and Jen Horst-Hewitt. And you can find more information about the topics that we talked about in this episode in the show notes. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Isabel Pollard with sound design and mixing by Alex Bennett and production support from Harry Morton, Alex Podmore, and Tom Clark. Technology Untangled is a Street production for Hewlett-Packard Enterprise. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.